All right, so I have to start today with a shout out to the Nutrier High School powerlifting team. Now, my day job is at Nutrier High School. It is separate from the Good Athlete Project. I want to make that clear. But the mission of what we do at Nutrier um, and, and my work as staff and student wellness coordinator transfers over to the Good Athlete Project. So there's there's definitely an overlap. And we just couldn't put out a podcast this week without recognizing those kids. We took 24 student athletes down to Oklahoma City for the first four days of their spring break to compete in NASA High School Nationals. So, like, long story short, let me just say this. They won. Both guys and girls team won the unequipped combined national championship. We could not be more proud of, of these kids. Most importantly, though, and I mean this with every part of me, it's not that they won, it's how they won. I'm telling you, they, we have kids that they just work so freaking hard all the time. Uh, they really try. They really care. And you can tell because um, there are moments along the way. So, for example, a kid misses his or her first lift. You can see him get choked up, kind of. You can see him you start to get nervous. Their investment is clear. But they shored up their process. When they made missteps, they adjusted them. They overcame adversity along the way. They supported each other as a team, and they pulled out the victory. It was just outstanding. I'll tell you, um, Alex, Alex and I were mentioning we had, we had just had this amazing weekend with these kids. They represented themselves well. They were high character. Please and thank you. Uh, you know, super competitive, super tough, but also super kind, just the way we like it. Um, we, we won. We received our trophies, took a team picture, went to dinner, took, went, a walk, went on a walk down by the, one of the rivers in Oklahoma, and we sat at a Sonic. Uh, and the kids got milkshakes. And Alex and I and um, the other coach who was down there with this Riyadh, we were sitting against the rail at a Sonic in Oklahoma City, and Alex actually mentioned to us both, um, this is the thing that's so hard to explain about the Good Athlete Project. And what he meant by that was he was at that moment looking over you know, looking at all these kids on the patio of a Sonic drinking milkshakes. And there was, you know, a, a freshman girl who had been busing from, from one campus to the other, where our, our high school's on two campuses, who had been busing from one campus to the other every day for I don't know how long. And it was fairly quiet and fairly reserved. And on that night, in that moment, was sitting with the captain of the football team, a bunch of older girls, some her own age, and was just rolling on the floor laughing, having the time of her life. The responses we get from the kids after this trip, the responses we get uh, from the parents, it's like, this is, this is it. And I will tell you, it's, it's almost unnameable. To say that we were tr- doing our best to use athletics as education, that would kind of sum it up. But I think you had to kind of be there in Oklahoma watching these kids drink milkshakes on the patio of Sonic as the sun has just set and the weekend is coming to a close and see them interacting with each other. People who didn't know each other, many of them when we got on the plane to take this trip, to see them interacting with each other in just a special, special way. That is at the root and at the core of what all of this is about. So... Congrats to the Nutria High School powerlifting team. You've done an amazing job. You earned your victory. You represented yourselves well. And there is more to come. I'll use that as a jumping off point because spring for us is big in strength. It's a big time for strength. Uh, we got a lot of, it's, it's powerlifting season in a lot of ways. Um, coming up, we have the Lion Invitational in Arlington Heights. That's through the IHSPLA. Check them out at IHSPLA. We have the Bears Invitational in Winnetka, Illinois, coming out through the same organization. Those are two high school meets. 
We're then going to Northfield, Minnesota, St. Olaf College, just south of Minneapolis, to host a collegiate meet. And in all cases, we try to, again, highlight uh, the concepts of beyond strength, which essentially mean that what you're doing now, trying to get your best squat or your best bench press or deadlift or whatever it might be, how the qualities that allow you to achieve that can be transferred into the rest of your life. Because if all you've got is a big bench press, no offense to those people who like it, but who cares? Okay? But if in the development of a big bench press, you learn about thoughtful processes, about the value of following through on your word and your commitments, about what you know, what effort looks like, what rest and recovery, and what the, the system of growth. If you can identify that as a quality and transfer it to your work life, your social life, your romantic life, whatever it might be, now you've, you're really on to something great. So again, shout out to the Nutri High School powerlifting team. Looking forward to three very cool meets this spring. I think that's all we've got for now. So let's jump into today's podcast. Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. So I was in Savannah, Georgia this January at the Nakahee National Conference when I met today's guest. The Nakahee organization is the National Association for Kinesiology and Higher Education. And when I was there, I came into contact with Dr. Steve Estes. Dr. Estes is a professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance at Middle Tennessee State University. He studied kinesiology in undergrad at San Diego State University, where he was a rower, and then received a doctorate from The Ohio State University with an emphasis on sport culture. After his doctorate, he taught all over the place. He was at Cal Fullerton, SUNY Cortland, East Carolina University, and Missouri Western State before landing in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. His administrative appointments include pretty much everything. He was the director of the Center of Technology and Education at Cortland, uh, department chair at East Carolina University, dean of the College of Professional Studies at Missouri Western. Everywhere he's been, he's been a leader. Following that trend, he has also served twice as president of the Nakahee organization that I referred to earlier. As an athlete, Steve was on U.S. national rowing teams. His career highlights include two national championships in the elite eight-oared shell and seventh place in the 1982 World Rowing Championships in Switzerland. We were excited to sit down with Dr. Estes because our research interests overlap significantly. He studies, among other things, the relationship of mind and body in sport and physical activity, philosophy of science and physical activity studies, postmodern sport, and the processes of leadership development. He's also the co-author of four textbooks in kinesiology and numerous articles on leadership and kinesiology in the military. He's heavily involved in ROTC leadership training, and his studies in military leadership have led to a commission in the Tennessee State Guard, where he currently serves as the public affairs officer in Nashville. The thing that was immediately apparent with Dr. Estes was he was a kind, charismatic, high-character guy. His leadership qualities were clear, and his academic interests are aimed at overall human enhancement. His list of accomplishments go on and on, but we're just going to go ahead and include a link to his bio in our show notes. So with that in mind, let's get right to it. Enjoy today's podcast with Dr. Steve Estes. Well, really, Jim, my whole reason for being, and I've told this story before, is I just wanted to be liked. Hmm. When you really get down to it, um, I always wanted to fit into a group. And what would it take for me to fit into a group? Hmm. And how do I... And eventually I found that I had to make the group so I could fit into it. Wow. And so I was the guy who planned the party. 
Um, and so I became sociable. I sat in the back of the class. I was the one joking around so people would like me. Sure. And um, I was all smart enough, mm-hmm. but rarely was I focusing. Uh, the thing I was focusing on was being accepted. Yeah. And, um, I, and so I thought that being a good athlete was the key to being accepted. And the irony was by the time I got to high school, I'd never been a good athlete. I was good enough to be on a team, sure, but I'd never been a good athlete. Mm-hmm. And then I got into college and I was a rower for a couple, three years and I was on a bad team. My freshman, you've heard of being undefeated? I have. And I went defeated. Ah, <laughs> okay. okay. Congratulations. At, at two years. A record. Two years. Uh, yeah, that's good. And then my third year, I was uh, well on my way to leading my team to being defeated. Mm-hmm. And my coach saw that he uh, Hey, you're in the back having a great time at the party, Steve, but you're no longer on the team. So I started, uh, I got into, I was, at, I was in a great place. Um, I taught uh, rowing, of course, but I ended up teaching water skiing and canoeing and kayaking, mm-hmm. surfing, sailing, yeah. Mission Bay Aquatic Center in San Diego. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was fantastic. Um, yeah. Really enjoyed that. And then a new coach came in, a rowing coach, and said, Steve, you're in a, you need to be in a a weight category. There's two weight categories in rowing, and I was a lightweight. So I used to race about 160 pounds. Hmm. So I was really sucked down, but I could do 160. that. 160. How tall are you? I'm 6'1", 6'2", yeah. something yeah. like that. So I was a lot thinner. Than sure. I, I look I look like a runner, you know. Yeah. We yeah. all did. And I was really fast, and so I started making teams. That was in 75. I almost made the 76 teams. 70, I made my first team 77. Tried to make teams off and on. Made my last team in 82. Then I got hurt, and I tried to make it for another few years. Didn't make it again. But mm-hmm. I, was, I was going pretty fast, but I'd lost sure. that little edge. Yeah. And uh, and so trying to do all of that stuff, being on groups, putting boats together that I could row with. Um, I, I coached in that time also. Mm-hmm. Um, learning about you know the physiology of training um the all the techniques that go on with rowing fast uh, the mechanics of the boats and the people um and then as i was coaching learning organizational skills uh, yes. all of those kinds of things i i didn't graduate from college until 82 so i started in 71 graduated in 82 i just goofed off flunked out dropped out Sure. But by 82, you know, I I started to focus on that. So I graduated in 82, and I went right into a grad program. I was fortunate to be at San Diego State where mm-hmm. they knew me and they let me in, even though I hadn't qualified for graduate school. Oh, wow. But I did very well once I got in. And then um, after a couple of years of that, I went to Ohio State, did my doctorate. And I so by then I'm slowing down. And so my question was, all right, why was I so attracted to sport? I right. Mean, really? What was it? It couldn't have been winning because I'm defeated, right? right? right, right. And it couldn't have been performance uh, or skill level because I wasn't good until I'm in my early 20s, mid 20s. So what was it that kept pulling me back really for, gosh, when did I start? I'm 16. I'm 20. So for eight years from when I'm 15, 16 years old in high school until I make my first U.S. team, I'm 23, 24. How did I sustain that? Right. What was it? And so I started thinking about it, and and there was something there. And I, at first I thought it was hero attraction, hmm. that I wanted to be around. I'm looking at you. I'm going to bet that I would have wanted to emulate you. I would have seen you as my athlete hero in my high school and my college. That is a nice thing to see. And I would want to grow up and be like you. And I'm not a I'm a skinny kid, and I'm not strong, fast, skilled. So... I start being around those people, and I look up to people like that, mm-hmm. and uh, so, and I get around them, and I do the things that they do, and then 
really by luck, I get into a place and a time and a sport where I do all of a sudden, no, no kidding, in a, in a month or two months, I achieve speed. Yeah. And, um, and, that, and it's not like world-class speed. It's just faster than everybody around me. Now sure. I'm getting acknowledged for that, so it's somewhat behavioral. But then um, when I'm in grad school, I start looking at this and say, well, first thing, it's the hero worship. So what's a hero? Well, why did I even like heroes? Hmm. And then my, so that got into my dissertation. And I've, I said, well, I, here's my hypothesis. I like heroes because when you grow up, you are always around stories, narratives, and they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in that beginning, middle, and end, there's a theme. And the theme is that, you know, guy, Cinderella story, man out of nowhere, sure. does all this stuff, wins. Everybody loves him. The story ends, and he lives happily forever after. Right. So I studied that formula, hmm. which is the, you know, Joseph Smith or Joseph Campbell hero of a thousand mm-hmm. faces things, mm-hmm. but I applied it to sports. So my dissertation was on uh, sport mythology. Wow. And so I come, I'm studying the Rocky movies, right? Why do we like Rocky? Why mm-hmm. do we like um, Miracle on Ice? Why do we like Hoosiers? Right. And those are stories with narratives, and the, the, in those narratives are formulas for how we become a good person. So mm-hmm. somewhere in there I'm recognizing that a good person is liked, is surrounded by a group of like-minded people with similar values, and I want to be that person. Hmm. Then I want to study that thing, and that really kickstarts it. So I'm doing that from the late '80s up and really to the present day, and, and it becomes a lot more sophisticated and evolves. I realize it wasn't heroes. I just wanted to be a member of the group, right. and so I had to make a group. And my error was thinking that if I I had to be a hero to be liked, right? But in fact, uh, the I really started getting a clue that that wasn't it when um, I came back after my what turned out to be my last national team. I'm sitting in a bar by myself, buying my own beer. Right. After two national championships, world championship competition. Yeah. Nobody's there. I mean, if my formula is right. right. Everybody's supposed to be there, This right? is the time, and, right? and there's supposed to be some kind of a celebration. I got home, not a soul even knew I was there. So I said, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Right, right. <laughs> so that... And then it led on to all kinds of things. The most recent epiphany, 10 years ago, I started working with Army ROTC, and mm-hmm. I fell in love with the cadets. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with the group. Mm-hmm. And I saw the group really making individual cadets really special people. And I said, well, what, what's going on here? Because mm-hmm. this is a living, working example of what I've always studied. It is the military, but I think I can extrapolate from that and put it in a school or a team or a, a sure. business or an u- academic unit. Then there's and and I took off from that and and so that that's kind of my metamorphosis from yeah. you know fifteen years up old you know for the last fifty years I just covered fifty years that was well done well, that was quick in like fifteen minutes that was speedy that's, so there I need to talk <laughs> slower next time that's right you gotta draw <laughs> that get, out a little I bit I get it's twenty minutes out of that that's right no, I think but it's, it's been yeah. fun sure that's 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 the the key and maybe the hidden um, and one of the hidden and very special things about sports. I would even say, not to take the conversation on too big a tangent, but that's also, based on the conversation we had before we started recording, I think that might be one reason, the fun element. It's one reason, it's obviously a reason people are so attracted to it. It also seems to be potentially a reason why it, um, maybe not sports, well, yeah, sports as a learning platform aren't taken quite as seriously as, say, like a math class might be, or even physical education is an extension or the next step from that. 
because it's fun, yeah. maybe people don't so, see the same light. I don't know if you've heard the name. Johann Hoitzinger, Homo Ludens, Man the Player. So he's a philosopher, I think he's Dutch, writing in the 30s, 40s. I think his book comes out in the 50s. But the thesis is that humans are players. Hmm. And it is our nature to be playful. And that in play, we become whole. Hmm. Very powerful argument. It used to be a required reading, and I'll give a, I'll give you my copy. I've got yeah, one around here, so you'll yeah, take that with you. I got it around here. So thank you. But um, uh, it's on the internet, I'm sure. But um, it's a very powerful thesis because he goes on to argue that's how we create culture, civilization, politics, hmm. and of course, you and I would argue people through sport. And so we use that ludic element. You say the bench press, sure, but that striving. And you, you become, it gets back to our point, what we talked about before we started recording, that focus. Mm-hmm. Because he said that the characteristics of play in the play moment is our total yep. con, uh, awareness. And he's got all these things. You make up your rules and you buy into it. And everybody around you does too. And you can feel it. Yeah. And you get into the flow experience. And I know you know about that. I do, yeah. And so there's a lot of overlap here. Well, and, that, and that's you on the back, on the patio, writing the book. That's, I was in flow. That's exactly yeah. right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's amazing. And uh, and so you live to be in that flow moment. And, and a lot of it, now we get into Arady's stuff, I think the embodied mm-hmm. component of existence is required to have the flow moment. To do it in a totally intellectual way is very difficult, Re- requires a ton of training. So let's say that right. mathematician we alluded to. Sure. Mathematicians, I read a story about a guy, he, he, 8 o'clock in the morning, he drank his last cup of coffee, went into a room, turned out the light, got in his easy chair, shut his eyes, and, and engaged in these the mental gymnastics of mathematical mathematics as a language. Yeah. I can't even imagine doing that. I'm embodied. Mm-hmm. And right. I think you know almost all of us are. He had to learn that. And he probably had a skill with it too. But think sure. about pianist, any musician, sure. any actor. I have to send you. I, I've probably referred to one of our podcasts more than the other. Not that it's necessarily the best. She is a wonderful person, advisor to the project. So maybe it is the best. Um, Lisa, if you're listening, but Lisa Feldman Barrett. It's a um, I forget which podcast. Maybe number forty-two. She wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made, and it starts. Um, it's similar enough to that in the podcast. In fact, I'll pull it up while I've got this here. Not the podcast, but the quote. Your brain didn't evolve for you to think and feel and see. It evolved to control your body. Yes. And everything else we do, we do in service to the body. Yeah. It's the truth. It's the unavoidable truth yeah. of who we are. It's Descartes' I'm a fan. Era. I'm a fan yeah. of that. That's, yeah. She's exactly right. I mean, it's spot on. Right? And, and you think about it. And, and, and we, again, we group things. It's, it's the nature of humans. It's the nature of the brain to group and compartmentalize and understand in small chunks so that we're not, like you say, like constantly in one place, you know, scattered all over the world. We group. We understand the properties of the desk. I don't need to investigate this desk too much. I've got a pretty good idea of what it's about. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But uh, what we don't recognize, I think, I, I say that because um, all of our perception is physical, right? Our eye, you know, we By get things. It's empirical. It, By it, definition. It, exactly right. right. So we have this filter of the body is the primary filter and cannot be taken away. The psychology is a necessary field and it, it overlaps very closely. Well, with I've, I would concede to my best friends in psych. I have, gosh, I've moved into, if they're an academic area, I've been pulled toward it, social psychology. Sure. 
But uh, psychologists, you know, the behavioral psychologists just recognize mm -hmm. this in some powerful way that the you are embodied. You are embodied. You are embodied. And, yeah. and this is Betty, my wife. Right. Oh, she's all over. That's all. Yeah. The thread through all of her stuff is embodiment. Right. Because she's a dance. She's right? dance, gymnastics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also she using that as therapy. Right. Getting people back in touch with their body. Totally. Yeah. So that sounds a lot like uh, Feldman. Lisa Feldman Bear, Barrett. Bear, yeah, Bear. she's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to have to tune into that. And uh, that, that actually brings us to one of the other points we were going to talk about, which is maybe the current state of physical education. Right. Um, which right. is, it's, we're in an interesting, well, interesting so spot right now. For the listener, then. Um, I've been in the field for 30 years as a professor. Yeah. Hard to believe that any institution would ever hire me for one. <laughs> but anyway. And then before that, so that's 89, and then I started coaching in 76, mm -hmm. and as an athlete, 71, and, and then really a high school athlete, you know, into the late 60s. So I've been doing that stuff around physical education in schools or activity in the schools for over 50 years. Right. And um, physical education was a big part of my life. I, you, you remember your gym classes. Absolutely. And I remember mine, and really the first, some of the most conscious memories I have of being in a school, I, I think of myself as becoming really self-aware, 12 years old, 11, 12, somewhere 13 there, years, sure. somewhere in there, um, was in gym class hmm. and becoming aware of your body, wanting yep. to get hair under your arms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And, and right. Uh, being seen in the locker room, because in those days, everybody's in the locker room. Some guys matured faster than others, shaving right. for the first time. I mean, your right. physicality is such a big part of you. Right. And then, of course, all the sports movies and sports and heroes again. That's a big thing. Right. So I remember gym class and being in this and my awareness is of self and of my relationship to the group. But being physically skilled, nah, fit, yeah. nah. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is what our field is supposedly teaching. And that's right. So it's all of that stuff. So that's my first memory of it. Then when you finally get into it, what are we actually doing in the schools for kids so that they learn whatever the lessons are supposed to teach them? Mm -hmm. And then in higher ed, how are we training teachers to teach that stuff or to help students learn it, sure. um, get on the teaching learning you know, uh, divide? And okay, good. So we do that. There must have been something that was successful because you had a program. I had a program. Mm -hmm. Well, what's going on now? Uh, I don't have exact numbers, but every time I go to a national conference, the story is that such and such a school has dropped their undergraduate physical education, teacher education program. I'm going to call that PET, P-E-T-E. And they've dropped their PET program. Here at Middle, I can give you some data. Yeah. Uh, we are the largest teacher training school in the state of Tennessee. Historically, we've put more educators in the schools in all of the areas, social studies to physical education to science ed in Tennessee. And so this department put physical educators out there more than anybody else, athletic trainers, coaches. Right now, we're down to 30 majors. Hmm. Now, at one time, we probably had four or 500. Is that right? So we're down to 30. We can't get students in there. And it's not because our faculty are not good. Our faculty, our professors are good. They say, this is the content that you need to know. These are the, and our content really is methods. Physical education, teacher education is focused on providing methods 
to our college students so that they acquire these methods and then they can go out and teach physical education in a school with they have those methods sure. classroom management uh, whatever time on task well when our kids graduate here they are really good measurably good observably good at doing that stuff and they believe and they're good people mm-hmm. and then they go out in the schools and what happens in the schools is decidedly not hmm. what happens uh, in their first day on the job. The first thing that when, when I talk to them, that they say, okay, uh, I've got this lesson plan and the senior instructor in the school say, kid, that's great. Put that away. Let me show you really how it's done. Hmm. And they are taught to get along and go along. Now, every industry has some of that. Sure. But uh, mostly what they do is they begin to serve school athletics. Uh, now, that's especially true from the middle school through the high school. Elementary school, there is still a fair amount of physical education going on. Mm-hmm. But we are seeing fewer and fewer programs in the schools, fewer and fewer college students majoring in physical education. Here, we're down to about 30. Uh, we're, we're graduating about, uh, we've been graduating 10 to 20 a year, but that's going to decline yeah. unless we do something to change it. Sure. Um, our kids are getting jobs because there's not enough people graduating to get out in the schools. Right. Uh, but once they get out there, most of my kids say, well, now how can I get out there and coach basketball or coach football or, right. or do whatever they, they did, what sure. their experience was. And so we've got a model that is just failing on multiple fronts. Furthermore, when they get out there, even if they are doing a good job, even if they have the support of their colleagues, <clears throat> parents are upset, their principal's upset, they've got 70, 60 kids in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And then I think the half-life of a school teacher in any discipline in the schools now is about five years. So wow. retention's a terrible problem. Hmm. That's, that's uh, the pay is low. And then if you're in physical education, not only are you coaching after school, but you usually draw lunchroom duty, bus oh, yeah, duty. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a, a whole host of other service obligations because physical educators historically have been in charge of discipline. Right. right. So many of our best go on into administration. They become the vice principal in charge of discipline and then they take they get their administrator certificate and go on to become a superintendent. In California when I was in the schools they actually passed a guideline in the <clears throat> San Diego Unified School District that only a certain percentage of uh, administrators could come out of physical education really because they 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 were being drawn out because of their uh, their ability to do discipline so all of those things are conspiring right to drive down physical education programs at the college and university level <clears throat> so that we're small uh, just up by you Purdue dropped their entire program did they really yep and all um, uh, many programs uh, at the research universities there's no money in it Right. There's no money in the, the faculty. Uh, uh, you know, you can't get a grant, a DOD grant or a NIH, I'm sorry, Department of Defense, National Institute mm-hmm. of Health, National right. Science Foundation. So, so physical mm-hmm. education has become a discipline that you'll see at places like um, your comprehensive four-year colleges, maybe with a master's degree. I'm, I'm not right. familiar with what they are. They are. Uh, Southern, Illinois, uh, Southern Illinois is pretty Southern good. My, uh, uh, Illinois State. Illinois State would be a great one. There you go. Yeah. Something like that. Sure. So all of these things have conspired to, to work against physical education being a discipline. And on top of all of that, 
the faculty in the programs, this is this is my bugaboo, mm-hmm. have not adjusted and adapted to the times. They're not doing the stuff that John Rady's doing with brain science. They're right. not staying current. They're still trying to operate a program as if it's 1950, 1960. So all of those things, I mean, look at the host of things I just, the litany. I just yeah, it's, a, it's complicated. It's, it's complicated. incredibly complicated. Yeah. And if you throw that into, if you throw an extra component into the mix, which is um, a lot of the people, you know, because of those host of issues, a lot of the people who come out of their physical education and experiences and go into maybe administration or whatever, yeah. might not have seen the same value yeah. that others would have now, because it's not Now, athletics optimized. is doing great. As sure. best I can tell, um, the athletes coming out of... Uh, you know, 16 to 18 year old kids, club and high school sport are doing better than ever. They're better trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's better science behind it, but that's not physical education. Right. That you're you're part of that industry now, mm-hmm. and so if you're going to get onto a, a like Nashville soccer club, which is travel teams out of Nashville or the ones in Murfreesboro, sure, um, they're excellent athletes. They're well trained. They're safe, yep. and they are learning these skills yep. excellently. So it's not like the thing that we used to do isn't being done. Mm-hmm. It's being done by other people. So it, that's right. That's and, right. Done, and done very well. Done very well. And I would even put an asterisk on that because um, only just for sake of conversation, because yeah. that's where a lot of our work jumps off. We have a, a cornerstone question, which is, does your behavior match your goal? And if, and if your goal as a, not an educator, but a private coach is make this person better at soccer, I'd, I'd that anyone who jumps yeah. into that field can nail it. If that's your goal, yeah, your right. behavior is mapping onto it perfectly. If your goal is to teach the you know lifelong health and wellness and, and strategies for all those, perhaps not. Eh. Right. Eh. right. So right, <laughs> um, which is why and, and it's true. And and we talked um, we talked about this. I how uh, I will oftentimes go into a setting and and with this disclaimer, I, I, we mentioned it before we got on again. Um, that I'm, I'm not in physical education. I'm not credentialed to do it. I just, I, I'm not a PE teacher. But I think through the filter of all my other experience, that PE might be the most valuable learning environment that we have. If for no other reason, it applies to everyone. Okay, if you're in the sciences or the arts or whatever it is, when you go off to your science or art class, you take you, you take the self, you take that right. physical perspective. Everyone needs to understand that health and wellness physical education and if we don't do it well and i don't want to get on a soapbox here but but i do get a little heated especially you know we get into this discussion why is the platform of physical education which is so darn necessary why is it being challenged and i think we have to be able to confront the truth is we we didn't do it well enough i think i think you're exactly right our physical educators and our peak programs are not doing it well enough yeah and others are doing it well. Some, enough. some certainly are, right? And, and right. they're getting results, um, fantastic, remarkable results. Mm-hmm. And so we are all we are all tempted because we see these huge success stories. And I gave you right. an example of my pal Don Hellison, who lives up, lived up by you, he's passed recently. <clears throat> he would go on the south side. He would take a basketball, and they had you know a court with rims with no chains or or strings, and he was able to get kids to to understand social responsibility through physical activity as he did it. Right. When he when he retired, his goal was say, okay, if I could teach it in my class, that's great. I can get him there. 
can I take the lessons from the class to the rest of the school? He got that success. Mm -hmm. And then he retired and his colleagues are continuing. Can we take the lessons that we're learning in the school out into the community? That's right. our next step. Right. And, um, and he, and, and that's where they're working on it right now. I think that's what you're doing. Very I don't similar. know that our physical education teacher education programs are working toward that goal to a great extent. What they're trying to do is continue to justify the things that they have always done as part of their own training. Yeah. They write more papers, do more scholarship to show that they can get results if they use a program as they've designed it. Yeah. But that's not the same thing as changing kids out in the world and making the world mm -hmm. a better place. Um, they, they come a little short. Now, some of them pull it off. Sure. sure. And, they're, and they're, they're really good. But too, yeah. too often in the... In, in the in the, you know, the giant physical education writ large across the United States. Right. No, it's not working. They're going someplace else. Right. And it's a hard <laughs> truth to confront because you, 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 I think you and I would agree with the people that get into that industry, you know, the 30 where there used to be 400, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like, those are probably good folks, you they, know, undoubtedly. They, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I let them be, I let them teach my children. There you go. But there's not enough of them. Right. And they're not as they're not growing what what was what you call it you had a phrase that you called about growing um it's right when we started talking about this uh, was it growth mindset yes growth yeah. mindset yeah. Yeah. they lack that yeah yeah I, th I think they lack that yeah as you and as you define that phrase to me sure and that's a hard thing to get um as i get older i i have to fight it i want to prove to the world that i was right Totally. Whatever that was. Right. And um, uh -huh. and it's hard to, somebody comes along like yourself and uh, you got a, a new spiel and I'm going, I, I had to train myself. Whoa, hey, dude, that's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Let's rock it, you know? Yeah. Or, 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 or we keep on mentioning John Rady, but if it's not him, there's a bunch, or sure. your, your colleague over here, Barrett. I mean, these people have something to offer. Right. And, well, and I totally. don't have a monopoly right. on this. The the best coach I've ever had, I have right now, her name's Jennifer Haynes. She runs my CrossFit gym. I don't think she's got a college degree. She's CrossFit certified. Yeah. And she is just genius. Really? Oh, yeah. She's, she's, uh, she's genius. Yeah. She's, she's, she, you, you'd be pals. I like her already. <laughs> she sounds great. But you bring up something interesting. There are two quotes that I'm reminded of. So um, one is we're having a guy named Brett Contreras on the, on the podcast. Um, Really nice guy. I actually met him at the ACSM conference. Um, he brought up the idea, and I think it probably pertains to your CrossFit coach. Um, he, he talks about people. You can tell who the practitioners are, who the yeah. real coaches are, by the ones who talk about what should happen versus the ones who talk about what, what does happen. Um, you know, too tied up in theory, uh, not enough in practice. Obviously, there's a middle ground there that one should be able to sit at. But um, while maybe your CrossFit coach doesn't have a, a wealth of theoretical knowledge or, or degrees or whatever it might be, it sounds like her practice is very sound. I, I, that's true. And I'm not arguing that anybody can do what she does. Sure. She has gifts that sound. got right. her to that place. She went kind of around the system. And for she's a mom and, sure. and, and worked her way through life and raised kids and her husband was a cop. And, mm -hmm. and, and so they opened the gym because they saw a need for it and they made it work and she yeah. became knowledgeable. Her son is getting his degree in exercise science. There you go. ACSM guy, going to get all the certifications. Sure. And, and he's already 
got a business uh, advising people throughout the world on training. Wow. But he, and he is getting the more traditional get trained, mm-hmm. but he's not becoming a physical educator. Right. He's becoming, he's going through exercise science. He's much more likely to be an NSCA where you presented or a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Sure. That through it. Is that NATA? Uh, There's a number of them. CSCS is also the NSCA. Yeah, okay. Okay. So he's going to go through uh, one of those. He won't be a physical educator. Mm -hmm. Um, But 30, 40 years ago, he would have been. Yeah, that's right. Well, and and I'm going to use that to touch on this other idea that you brought up. You used the word justification. I think it's a really interesting way to look at it. I think it's such a natural human propensity to try to justify one's actions and because in part because it's hard to confront if you yeah. if it goes wrong. Yeah. Um, we have another sort of tagline which is do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? And you could be plenty right and you could spend your entire career proving how right you were. Right or in this case That's what all those books are to a great extent. Is it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. a lot of them are a lot of them are really good. Yeah, I believe it. And then, and then, but success oftentimes well, looks so different. You, would you say you are a pragmatist then, in the in the Deweyan sense of pragmatism, meaning the the truth is the selection of the better of two ideas based on the those ideas put into action. That's that's how Dewey and J- and William James defined pragmatism. Well, I like both of those guys, uh, James especially theoretically. I I. Have that in me, no question. Yeah, I think um, I just think the the one of the most important things is is to accurately look. We call it a just accurate looking, and that's actually where the start. You see this, you know, uh, to be thoughtful within yeah. athletics. Mindfulness. Mindfulness is a huge component, but I so I see mindfulness more through. We're dropping a lot of names here. I hope people will look into these people. Um, Ellen Langer wrote a book called Mindfulness. She's a psychologist out at, at Harvard, and she it, it's not it's not yoga, it is not um, any breathing exercises. It is literally the state of being mindful as compared to the state of being mindless. So the, the, you know her her take on mindfulness is is more pragmatic, I suppose, and uh, than than whatever modern mindfulness has turned into. And uh, I, I really do get on board with that, where you just have to be clued in and into this this state of accurate looking. Uh, you have to have a plan, of course. You have to take context into consideration, <clears throat> predict barriers whenever possible, and then you have to implement well and then listen to feedback. So, I mean, there, there's a, sort of a baseline way of operating there that I think we ought to do yeah. more often. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you look at the classic disciplines, you know, yoga, mm-hmm. um, Buddhism, mm-hmm. Zen. Sure. Um, and these argued for mindfulness mm-hmm. as a way of being in the world. Yep. And, of course, knowledge is is part of that. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Western way of doing things, which saw knowledge as a discrete thing separate from our being, mm-hmm. takes us down a path which has been very productive in a lot of ways. But it's also, a, it can be a cul-de-sac. Right. And you end up not being a particularly good person. Now, I, I mentioned Ernest Boyer earlier. He wrote the book Scholarship Reconsidered, and the follow-up to that, he comes out and says, really, when you get down to it, when you're doing scholarship, hmm. you, you think that the outcome is going to be the book or the paper, the grant. Uh, but actually what happens is it fundamentally changes the scholar. Mm-hmm. So That's the right. act of doing scholarship creates a scholar. Mm-hmm. And that's mindfulness. Yeah, it, it is. It's funny. And, and I'll tell you, I... Uh, when I was working on my degree before this last one, I, did a class, I took a class in East Asian religion. 
and I've, I've done a lot of poetry and very interested in that. There's a haiku poet named Busan. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about haiku on this podcast, so this is good. Uh, <laughs> Busan, and I actually, I had a whole show. I, do, I make art as well. I'll show you some pictures after this. But um, he, when he would write haiku, he would essentially just go out into the world and write. And, and that his practice was, as he puts it, he would always be in the process of coloring his mind. And, and I, I love that idea, colors of mind. So he would he would cultivate uh, a filter. He would color his mind and then, as a haiku artist in this particular case. And then all he would do then is go out and observe the world and write down what he saw. So it's not that he was practicing haiku. But, you know, I'm trying to make a comparison to the scholarship stuff. It wasn't so much that the haiku was the absolute outcome. He wanted to write these books of haiku. And it, he was coloring his mind and then observing the world through that filter. Yes. So the Western way... And certainly higher education, the haiku is the point. Right. Exactly. And right. ironically, universities are structured so that we sh- change kids to go from here. I know this is sound from a low point to a higher point to mm-hmm. become a higher order of being. Mm-hmm. So ironically, we're using knowledge to tr- to create a kid who exists at a higher point of being, and the and the method is to provide them knowledge. Right. And as they acquire this knowledge, they become a different kind of person. They become an educated person. And, of course, physical education was part of, of that sure. whole process. But the way that faculty live is somewhat separate from that. Write the paper. Get right. the grant. Mm-hmm. But then day to day to day, you know, your daily life, you know, I have kids in here. And I, I'm out in my classes and, and working with them. And, and when I'm having a good day, I'm coloring their minds. Mm-hmm. And uh, inspiring them and having them fall in love with this and mm-hmm. really trying to have some fun. Uh, you're, you're right yeah. about fun. You're exactly right about that. Yeah. When I've got a noisy, happy class, I've got a learning class. There's, right. When people come down the hallway and shut my door because my kids are going nuts in there, <laughs> then something's going <laughs> like right. Now, some of them, yeah. no doubt, are talking about getting a date you know, or whatever. Sure. But by and large, when I walk by, they're on task. Yeah. Now, I could be deluding myself, but I've been doing this for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and by and large, I can, t- I can tell when somebody's into it. And, you know, the kids who don't do well in my class basically are not present. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's a good distinction. That, that is such an interesting distinction. And it, it, that maps on so well to this part of the Good Athlete Project model. Yeah. Um, to have fun and to be engaged, like, that's part of the point. Yeah. You know, fun... Uh, leads it, fun and engagement go hand in hand. Yes, and we have that more often in sports than we would potentially it's, it's, in a regular in a way, classroom. We've really got. I mean, can you imagine trying to teach math? Now, I did have math teachers who were so good that they could make sure. solving right. quadratics fun. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Fisher in eleventh grade. There you go. And we did algebra trig, and she'd get these big sheets of she, you and a buddy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She'd give you an equation, she'd write up on the board, and you and your buddy would work together on solving a quadratic equation. Hmm. And that was, and she made it fun, and we'd push the tables back, everybody's yelling, and got it! Yeah, yeah. You know, and then they'd go up and they'd put it on the board, and they'd talk everybody through the class, and, and sometimes you get exasperated. And, and But she, she knew how to run that. She was that's really incredible. good at that. Um, well, that's, that's one, okay, so... We look at sports. The, the initial jump off, the initial light bulb moment for the Good Athlete Project came in a neuroscience classroom where we were talking about if we could, how would we design the perfect yeah. educational environment? We were talking about the attention and retention networks in the yeah. brain. 
And she is tapping into many of the things that make sports so unique. Yeah. Right? There's there's novelty. There's there's the right amount of challenge that's just right at the edge of your yeah, capability. That inverted U curve. Yeah, that's right. There's yeah. there's powerful models. There there is a group dynamic. So partnering people up. There's low level of competition. People shy away from competition. They should not. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's a it's all just like people shouldn't shy away from stress. It's just how much of it. And how steady should and how should be how it's time. applied and it well, you're right but, it was a very safe environment yeah you're well, on the floor with your buddies that's amazing and um, I don't know I think she got it because somebody had done it with her but it, interesting to me my best teachers in the schools were all math teachers yeah uh, I had my coaches were okay but my math teachers were better go figure that one out I believe it. Um, and and that's a, that's an important point to note, I guess. Also, I, I rag on, or I hope I don't rag on classroom teachers. They're necessary and they're amazing. And of course, I su- I support and yeah. celebrate all of them. I just really do think that there's something so unique well, about this other space. There's something certainly unique for you and me, right? And and I th- I think that the gifted teacher. Uh, has a way of communicating and being with students in such a way that the students fall into that that world. One of your slides earlier had environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, in anthropology, there's the uh, emic and the edict. And I forget exactly which one is which, but you can be an anthropologist apart from your compu- community or an anthropologist embedded in the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have just found that the great teachers I have known embedded mm-hmm. in the classroom, in their community, and became one with it. Yeah. And so the butcher block thing, and, and uh, gosh, I remember Mr. Anthony teaching the flagpole theorem in 10th grade geometry, and he would, okay, our intuitive switch, and then we turn off the intuitive switch. What do the rules say? And, or Mr. Agawa doing calculus in high school. And mm-hmm. I mean, these guys were gifted. Yep. They found a way to get that. Now, Good, my really good coaches have done that. Jennifer down at my CrossFit does mm. that too. I'll bet you're doing that in your gym when you're working with your athletes. Um, we uh, we sure try to, and I, and, and and we have yeah. our failures. Abs- of course, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. human, you know. Yeah, but, but to be uh, able to, but we, but I think by and large, I, my colleagues say I, I generally don't teach in the undergraduate program, but right. but I grade out tops of all the faculty with the undergraduate students. Oh, Steve, the students all love you. And I'm yeah. worried. I'm 65. Hmm. You know, do the kids like, I'm, have I lost it? Can, I, can yeah. I still talk to these kids? Yeah. The answer is yes. So far, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I think i got a few years left in me. But sure. I, one thing I have changed in my teaching style is I don't lecture anymore. Hmm. Um, a lot more because the kid, the environment has changed. The kids are coming to me differently with different mm-hmm. experiences, and so I've got to set up a different dynamic. I've got to, I've got to be mindful of that. I've got to yeah. feel the environment. But you know, it's when important. I'm talking to kids and it's working, I got this going on, right? And I can still command a classroom, but I, but I got to switch it up. You got to be different. You got to, got to feel it. You got to feel it. You have to, and what's it's true, and you, and you bring up. Um, we mentioned at the beginning. I actually, my, I initially pulled my computer out to show you that I, I'm working on an article right now based on a comment that um, Commissioner Silver made from the NBA. Did you see that at all? No. About attention, Adam no. Silver. It was about Kyrie. He he made some statement about how social media was uh, wrecking the attention 
of NBA players, and I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but uh, and thereafter promoting anxiety and depression and stuff like that, and we got a real epidemic in how he will okay. sit down and meet with I, people. That is the first time I've that. ever heard somebody who runs a sport mm-hmm. league make a cut. Co- I mean, that he's spot on. I mean, we're. I think I. I mean this. I think we're going to reflect back on this societally. Because I hope this is the beginning of initiatives to help support those players. And, and I'm telling you, so the fallout was because, okay, he made that comment, and then Charles Barkley came out. Oh, I did, did you hear this? I heard about yeah. his response, but no I didn't response. hear what he responded to. That's what, so that's what he was responding to. That's what he was responding to. to. And it's funny because Charles Barkley, for people who haven't heard this, um, essentially said, what, is, what does this guy have to complain about? He was now referring to Kyrie Irving. Um, and saying whatever he's making millions of dollars, you know they stay in the nicest hotels. What does this guy have to be upset about? And this paper that I'm writing, it's, I mean, it will be like an op-ed. It's a, it's a brief paper, but um, it talks about how it talks about the subjectivity and relativity of of success and what happiness actually is from you know from a not overwhelming but neurological perspective. Yeah. And this idea you mentioned the dings. You know, we are we are no longer. It's not like you go stay in a nice hotel and you feel really good. We are now plugged into an IV drip of, of a different sort of <laughs> yeah. low level social acceptance. And NBA players probably have it worse than most. There's suggestions that even from among all famous athletes, NBA players have the largest followings and for whatever reason are most plugged into this uh, social yeah. media. Circle. You know, so I recommend a book, Phil Jackson's Sacred Hoops. So Jackson, of course, has what six? He has eleven. Eleven NBA, rings. Eleven rings, and he worked with, of course, pro basketball players who are. Now he worked before all this stuff is really going on, but That's he right. manages to work with the athletes who are who who may be the most pulled on. You know, Jordan and Pippen and, mm-hmm. and all those guys. Rodman and, and Rodman, yeah. um, but he is able to connect with them. In the most profound way, and if he's he's into the Lakota Indians and yep. Native American philosophy, and and so I recommend it as a book that I, I say all the to all the kids who want to go become coaches read Phil Jackson's Sacred Hoops because it's just a great it's an easy read and it's fun read it's still relevant but I think he handles that kind of a situation as well as any pro coach has ever handled it. Um, it would be interesting to see if. If Jackson were young and he came out now, if he could handle the social media problems that exist right now, he certainly handled them in his time. Sure, um, but I I think that's a very. Ast- I'm going to go back and look at that conversation by Silver and and I and I like Barkley. Barkley's smart as a. I do too. I like him. And um, I wonder. I think those two miscommunicated because I'll bet that's you. Right. I I put good money and a lot of beer on those two if they got <laughs> together in a room and talked. They'd end up agreeing with each oh, other. Oh, no doubt. That's right. I, I think they would. I think, and that's kind of the take I had too. I don't want to throw Charles under the bus. Yeah. I, think you're, I think he's kind of underrated as he's he's kind of sharp and well, you know, and I look at Shaquille ideas. O'Neal and, and Charles Barkley and, uh, I mean, some of the really great basketball players who have parlayed their NBA opportunity into an entire separate career. Mm-hmm. And these guys were really good um, yeah. at, at this stuff. And, in fact... Jordan, Michael Jordan, has not pulled that off as right. well. Right. Jordan, though, could be in the moment in basketball better than these others. Right. That's that's my sense of that's it. it. He, him yeah. and Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, these guys were the, the he was the better athlete in many ways. Uh, but totally afterwards, agree. and that's interesting that you say that because I wonder. Here's what I would say: 
I'm from Chicago. I've had to defend Michael oh, yeah, a yeah, number yeah, of yeah. times, but but not that hard. it's not that hard because he is he is the greatest of all time. Yeah, and I'm not convinced anyone will be able to come close. Just like yeah. I think John Wooden is uh, the greatest basketball coach yeah, of all yeah, time, yeah, who yeah. would probably align with. I mean, if John Wooden were alive today, he'd be the next guest on the Good Athlete yeah, Project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he's just fantastic, um, indisputably successful, and did it the right way. Jordan indisputably successful on the court yeah. and did it the right way on the court and making distinctions here. Yeah. But the way that he could lock in and finish and focus and And finish and focus. Yeah. He he was so good. I remember seeing film of him and he's at the line do, doing a free throw. It's the only time he wasn't moving, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was so focused, other people would focus on him being focused. Right. Other people focus on how intense this focus. It's true. It's it's just it's amazing stuff. And I would say, because we're in the social media conversation, that maybe one of the reasons that he is not as um, quantifiably successful post-career, although I'm sure he is, he's, right? doing, he's, made, fine, he's yeah. doing just yeah. fine, but but he does get ragged on for that. Like he's a better player than he is in you know in, yeah. in the back office, and, and that's totally true. Um, I wonder though. When he just finished, so his last year of playing, I don't know where it maps onto social media timeline-wise, but I, I wonder if being um, a, a talking head, for lack of you know, being a personality in sports, was the thing that it is today, right? If he had he gone directly into that, I wonder if he would have had an equivalent. Yeah, I don't success. know if he's got the skill. You know, I I don't know. I see I see commercials of Shaquille O'Neal, and he's just got a way with people. He does, he and does. and so does Barkley, yeah. and. Uh, and so you know we're 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 pulling something, we're we're trying to draw lessons out of uh, s- singular psychologies when all we know is their media presence, which is mm-hmm. which you you know as well sure. as I do that we can't do that, yeah. but it is interesting to see some of these people how how they parlayed their their career into something else. I think you're right. I think Charles and and Commissioner Silver would ultimately get on the same page yeah, with that. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a hard thing to recognize because there is like my dad, for example, who, believe it or not, does have an Instagram page. Like he has an account that we set up for him mostly so we yeah. can follow his his friends and um, and kids and things like that. But um, I, I'm not sure that they interact with that technology. I, I don't think I don't think get, they get how insidious it, it has yeah. the potential to be. I think one of the requirements of understanding this issue is that. You, you as a scholar or a researcher of this, have to be able to both observe it and then train yourself to distance yourself from mm-hmm. that which you are observing. Right. Right. And I think most people don't, well, they're not trained to do that. Um, and, and I don't, now having said that, was I trained to do I never took a class in that. But at some point, the, the, we discuss in seminar and in practice the notion of objectivity. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by training, that if you're going to be a researcher in the social sciences, you have to become aware of yourself as an observer, mm-hmm. as you observe. And then when you take your notes, when you do your analysis of that, whether it's uh, ethnographic or however you're doing this mm-hmm. stuff, your qualitative methods, um, that you begin to go back and forth and and you have to have some facility with that mm-hmm. and once you begin to do that you start to see that hey this device is part of my environment it's shaping me as I use it and then you have to become skilled at that observation right. 
And so it's like any other skill, the bench press again, uh, or rowing a boat, mm-hmm. uh, you have to become skilled at that thing. And I think what you and I are getting at here is that many of us are becoming aware of our social media environment and it's both benefits and it's right and it's limitations. And yeah. and by and large, if I could say it this way, we really don't understand it. We really don't study it much. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think down the road we will actually train our children to be uh, part of this environment. Yeah, uh, we'll have, we'll become conscious of it. And so you're starting totally. to see some of that stuff. Um, I read an article in the New York Times the other day about. Uh, Wealthy young entrepreneurs who um, disassociate with social media, they go down someplace in Mexico and they live separate from this without any devices. Hmm. And uh, it's purposeful. It's almost a monastic experience. Yeah. It is a monastic yeah, experience. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and so then they, they become aware. And so I think we're going to be doing that kind of training. I think so day. too. And training is the right word. I, I've been convinced for a long time that some ver- attention is a skill. Yeah. It's a cognitive it's process. A, it, it, exactly like, right. You can learn it, and I think uh, I, that's obvious enough. I think because we are we are at this weird precipice in the world where where uh, I, I think we're going to have to train attention in a way that we've not yet had to do it. And and yeah. there's a there's kind of a funny anecdote that a former professor of mine met, used to talk about, and it was he would read a a certain general's warning from from way way back, and I and I want to say it was 1700 something like that, and uh, it was it was you know, this product may cause malaise, obesity, uh, disassociation, like, et cetera, and just a laundry list of, of negative outcomes, potentially. Yeah, and the AMA would never approve this thing. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, and, and he was talking, or the, you know, it, it was a warning about the printing press. Yeah. So this is the advent of the, they, they, people were convinced that, that folks would lose themselves right. in so writing and reading. Martin Luther in the early 1500s, could not have become Martin Luther without the Gutenberg press and all of that happened. And think about it. Prior to the 1500s, we're an oral culture. Mm-hmm. After that period of time, we're a written culture. Prior to 1500s, people could not fall into a book. I mean, right. have you read a book recently where you just fall into it, an hour or two goes by, and you are in that universe? Right. And that experience did not exist prior to 1500. Mm-hmm. Now, it did. Outside of storytelling. Right. But it, well, storytellers did, yep. and so we sat around the fire and what have you. Sure. Um, but after 1500, and then as pr- books become more available, people do acquire that. So now what's happening is we're shifting from the printed word and text to something else. Something, it's totally now it's it's and probably you know, gosh, I just forgot. I just left out radio in the 20s, 30s, sure. 40s, sure. and then I left out television, of course, right. which people fell into that. And of course, uh, is the automobile, which would be the downfall of Western civilization. Well. You know, now we're into another one. Just right. as you said, we are on a precipice, and we don't know how to use it. Right. That's right. That's right. And I think I think intentionality, and attention, and focus—all these words you've used, mindfulness—all of these things try to get at that same thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think where you're going with all of your stuff is that if we can teach that thing through our physicality, mm-hmm. then we are becoming a whole person. Mm-hmm. We are looking at human performance in the best sense of that. We are a multivariant system that's unavoidable, yeah. and it's it, and we need to address every point of the system. And it's just, in my opinion, it, probably ours. It's it's clear that the attention component of this multivariant system, we we need to pay more attention to.
to the attention component. It's yeah. never been more necessary. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talk about, that was a really good point, bringing up the, the radio was like, holy cow, people just engrossed. You know, you see those pictures of, you know, kids oh. on their elbows is engrossed yeah. with the radio. And then, and then the TV was that. And, and at every step of technological advancement, there's been worry. Yeah. And, and some would say that that's where we are now. I don't think that's where we are now. I think in the hockey the hockey stick, you know, ex, we're at an exponential rise of understanding on the part of the programmers. You know, technology has never been able to hack our attention in quite the way it is now. It's it's pretty exceptional. So that's so, I, I that's a really good point. So what you're saying is that say 1500 Gutenberg puts the press together. He's not thinking of human psychology when he's figuring out a way to do moving, moving type. He's not intentionally. And so the radio's not right. doing that. Television's mm-hmm. not doing that. Right. Newspapers in the 1800s aren't doing that. But now television programmers are trying. But but you're right. But, but never before. And and you think you, you get into stuff. one of those. I'm That's telling you, it, it it's you you, uh, you get into the most engrossing novel you've ever read. If a dog barks, you'll you'll turn. You know what I mean? There there it can only be the the most engrossing, uh, captivating plot line can only carry you so far. It only has your attention to a point. The 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 stuff that we've got now is advised by. Harvard, Berkeley neuroscientists, they bring in, you know, these programmers bring in the people who know the brain better than anyone else on earth, and they can help them, they essentially consult and get paid to show them the methods of undercutting and locking into our attention spans, right? There's a variety of, and I've got a list in this article, I'll share it with you before I leave. Um, you know, it, it's it's like cheating to a point. The best and brightest minds, and, and there, there's got it, there's a neuroethics component to this because you know should these people be giving this information to the for-profit entities that are designing and hijacking our kids and i say our kids i don't have any yet um someday different point um but we still haven't seen the first generation of kids raised on phones and that's kind of a concerning idea to me my daughter is in 10th grade in missouri and we moved her out there betty and i had just gotten married and the iPhone one came out mm-hmm. and as a bribe kind of a thing, mm-hmm. hey, I'll get your friends, I'll get you this new phone. Mm-hmm. And I bought her an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And that year, things happened like I'd come into her room in the morning, the iPhone is dead, she has only slept like an hour. Right. And nobody knew. Right. And she'd been texting with her buddies back at our old home because we had mm-hmm. moved away right. and that's what the why she got the phone. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally unprepared to handle this situation. Yeah. She's a great kid, by the way, of course. And, and works in Austin in the tech industry. There you go. There you go. She gets it, right? She gets it. And she's really good and, and not that active in social media, interestingly. As many people, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but many people who are in the technology and social media industries, many, many times these people are not the heavy users. Right. There's no question. And even um, there's a book called Irresistible out there. I think the author's name is Adam Alter. In the the preface, the, the first story of the book, he goes into um, some well-researched anecdotes about people like Steve Jobs and Evan Williams who created Twitter. Yeah. And the big takeaway from it for me was those people who understand the power of the technologies that they are inventing very deliberately don't allow their own kids to engage with it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more telling than that. And and I get into this. I'm getting a little choked, fired up right now. I'm just thinking about it because 
because um, you are an incredibly intelligent guy who cares about his kid and and did not realize what he was handing over. Th- there's an ethical component to this. Yeah. Like th- those guys should have to answer yeah. for that. Here, take this gun. Right. You know, I'm in I'm in the guard. Uh, tomorrow, I'm, I meet with my colleagues. We're uh, uh, we're at the range. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to do that, and the care that we take right. in that environment is stunning. Because you understand, we don't. You know, we we don't handle the. I mean, the way we handle the weapons. Yeah. Yeah. Because we understand. Yeah. These devices that we've got are very similar to mm-hmm. that in terms of their power. Mm-hmm. Now they don't. They don't. They don't kill you right away. Like, right. Uh, like it's not acutely, but but, but right. the, the 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 awareness of the destructiveness, and also to to be fair, I mean, weapons are tools, and yeah. they they keep social order, or help maintain social order, or right wrongs, or capture bad guys, whatever it is. Sure. Um, but uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. The way that we. And, and, but look how long it took us to develop that kind of right. culture. Right. That's interesting. That, that's a new, that's a good way to look at it. You know, on our military tool. bases, we do not allow our soldiers to walk around armed. Is that right? No, you are. Your weapons are kept in the armory. You are only allowed to handle your weapon when your superior officer authorizes you to handle your weapon in very hmm. specific circumstances. Hmm. But you are. That's why that big shooting down at Fort Hood. There are so many soldiers that were killed. Nobody was armed. Right. Except the shooter, and then the MPs right. who came in and who, uh, who shot him and took him down. Right, but yeah, it's, you know, that's look amazing. at that. You know, that's a very similar kind of thing. So that's imagine a, a school metaphor. where we don't allow our students to engage with their technology unless it's a very strict, controlled environment or a family. Right. Same thing. Shouldn't there be an education on the front end of that too? Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you, we have. Yes, um, absolutely. I really believe absolutely. that. I, I have. Um, first of all, I, I, I want to quickly acknowledge the tool is such a great metaphor. Yeah. It, can, it can be this very powerful thing and can be as. It's it's an e- it's an even sort of balance. It's like as positively powerful as it could be, it can be as negatively powerful. That's right. That's, a, that's, that, that's inherent right. to power, and it is a neutral thing. Right. It's a neutral. Right. Thing. It is. It's just a tool. Right. And social media seems to be kind of leaning in that direction. We have um, the school that I work at, Nutria, a wonderful, amazing place. Only, and I'm and I mean this, and I'm on the inside of it. Only makes decisions in what it believes is the best interest of its students. No question. And you maybe you have people. It doesn't always go to plan, but I'm I'm so proud to be from it and confident of you know in that idea. Those things go hand in hand. But one thing I will say, I, I I'm prefacing a, a brief story. Um, when we when I walk through the halls, every kid's got an iPad. Distributed by the school. Yeah, and they're and, head uh, down in it. And I'm telling you, and some of them are using it for as a tool. Some of them are using it to do their homework. And it's it's incredible in that way. You know, there's no more leaving your piece of paper back home. You know, it's all centralized. It's it's right there for you. And, and the way that you can interact with it is more powerful. It's like Mrs. Fisher's classroom. It's it's different than, than a pen and paper, whatever. It's, it's very positive when used correctly. More than half of the kids are playing games. Yeah. Or on Snapchat or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're on them all day. Yeah. So... And uh, that, that's our point. So I think, you know, I, uh, we're probably getting close to wrapping this up. Yes. This notion of intentionality and mindfulness mm-hmm. as an excellent way of being in the world. Yeah. So I'm going to go back and I'm say something good about our physical educators. Uh, because there were some phrases and there are a lot of people who got it right. And some, mm-hmm. something must have gone right because you and I are, right. are believers. There's a phrase, way to be. 
And that is uh, an acknowledgement that your existence, your being, your essence has met some kind of desirable standard and mm -hmm. a kind of excellence. I think of one of my little plaques up there, I one of them, I think the top left one, it says, way to be. And that's I when it. I was chair of a faculty senate. And that's what I said a lot. Yeah. And everybody kind of laughed at it because it was my little stupid gym teacher phrase. Sure. But you don't think about, hey, way to be. And um, if we can get kids to strive for that old saying, that old understanding of that, and it's, and it's cultural so that you don't have to ram it at them mm -hmm. as knowledge, but get them to tap into that, to want it. And we, we've got a heavy lift because when you and I compete with Snapchat, we're going into a right. gunfight on our Right, right, right. Uh, but, well, yes and no. Let me back up. There's millions of years of evolution that we can tap into to capture that kid. Mm -hmm. In things I, I that movements, sounds, probably smells, mm -hmm. we don't even know that we have. That's the embodiment part. Right. And we need to learn what those tools are. Good educators will do that. And, and Mrs. Fisher had it. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll figure out a way to use that stuff to grab our kids so that we can take take back our species. Yeah, take back our species. I, you're right. You're right. And we better and we better hold tight and be yeah. thoughtful about it. Yeah. I, there are two things that I hope we can touch on before we wrap it up. Yeah. One is I, I'd like to dig into. Do you remember as a rower, feeling flow? Yes. Or yeah. Absolutely. Tell, tell me about that experience. It's such a unique sport. Well. Okay. Um, flow is that that experience where you're just totally one with whatever it is that you're doing. You could be making love, gardening, um, but for me with rowing, uh, I remember the first time that I had that flow experience. So I was a sophomore in college, and as I told you, I wasn't. We weren't a very good crew, but there were times where the boat was moving excellently and the rowers in it were moving precisely together and there's a there's a sensation you get and there's a word it's called swing swing to the boat and you put your oar in the water and you draw it through to your chest and your hands come away and you're you're everything's moving and you're in synchronous movement with everybody else in the boat mm -hmm. and it's it's just such a wonderful sensation that really begins in in your gut yeah and you're aware of it in your head, and uh, all, all these things are going together, and I miss it badly, because now I row in a one-person boat, right. and I don't know who's screwing up my single. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now, I have rowed in the single where I was into the flow experience, mm -hmm. but it, it's a heavy lift, because a, an eight is fast and quick, and million cues coming in from all the different mm -hmm. things, the water, the other rowers, the boat itself. And in a single, many fewer, but there were times when the water was smooth and it may be even misting a little bit and you're out there by yourself and you just can tell that you're doing it perfectly right. The, mm -hmm. What did you say earlier about the, the inverted U-curve? You know, the challenge and my ability That's have right. met. Yep. And I'm in exactly that moment. And, um, and that, I, I never had experienced that in before in any movement. I'd been in flow. I'd been in red books where I fell into the book. I'd, sure. But I'd never been in something where there's so many things that, and it was so hard to do so mm -hmm. well. Sure. And um, God, that was fun. And so I still train. 
I still row. Um, every now and then I will get out into my single and the water will be nice and my fitness is well enough. And I, I don't row as hard, but, you know, I've backed off a little bit and I'm in that moment. And um, I'm still doing it and having a lot of fun. And, um, and so that that's guided me in a lot of ways. How can I get into that moment with whatever I'm doing? I right. mean, with whatever I'm doing. Right. And uh, so it gave me a, a standard. And so can I get to that? I think every athlete I've ever met in their sport has ex- who's any good mm-hmm. has met uh, that has had those moments, and that doesn't mean you had to be on the national team. I mean, I right. think a lot of high school aged athletes, maybe even a little bit younger than I think, you have to be self aware. So I'd, I'd I'd say if you're not 12, 13, 14 years old, you probably haven't had a flow experience. Right, right. Harder to come by. Mm-hmm. You don't have to develop the skill, the physicality. But um, I think a lot of our high school athletes, runners, certainly, that's one of the things that we've done a lot, um, you know, you start getting that experience. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, yeah. Golf, you know, every now and then I hit one right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd imagine it's pretty similar. Yeah, I think. Everything's just I, I look at, you know, tune. the really good golfers, uh, they can feel, there's a feeling you yeah. get. And that it's very embodied. Yeah, it is. Um, so I've, I've had that experience Running a little bit when I was training really hard, I had one run once, mm-hmm. a ten-kilometer run where I just had it. Um, when I was swimming a little bit more, I was a better swimmer than I was a runner. Hmm. And then also, I used to race bikes. I did triathlons. Right, uh, and That's what um, I say. the uh, and so on my bike, I could get into that, and I'd, I'd go 30, 30 miles, and I'd be just pounded on it. And I, I was good enough to do that. Sure. Um, so is that? Are you still? Is that your exercise of choice these days? If I could do anything, it'd be rowing. But you know what's what's really fun? You can still get out there and, and still be with friends, still be in the group, still mm-hmm. be focused, still be trying stuff. Now, we are talking about apps and how they can be good. Yep. So I've got my chest strap on now, which is recording my heart rate, which is putting it into programs, which is giving me training cycles, giving me intensity, mm-hmm. how rested am I, how fatigued am I. Yep. I, I didn't have this stuff when right. I was your age or, right. you know, younger. And... Um, and uh, all my young colleagues are showing me how to do this stuff. And I'm going, whoa, this is great stuff, you know. Right. And they say, yeah, I, I, I can control my taper now. Hmm. And so that's pretty good use of that tech. I would say so. That's using the tech instead of being used yeah, by that's right. No and I have to learn some new skills. And um, those, are, those are all really fun things. I love it. But outside of that, um, the other thing I do, which has been really fun, is the CrossFit. The CrossFit's sure. harder to have the flow experience but I have many more friends there, yeah. and I have. And if there's one thing I've, it, it's my theme, right? Mm-hmm. And I was down this morning, and um, I went down. All my buddies were there, and we saw each other, and we're all gray, <laughs> we're all wrinkled, and we all love each other. And when I see somebody getting after it and failing, hmm. and I go, that that's a tough son of a bitch. Yeah. Uh, I go to the nine o'clock class. I'd say it's eighty uh, percent women mothers who drop their kids off at school who yeah, train. Sure. And I have worked my way up to the women's weights. There up you go. To I hear you. And um, <laughs> and but I I love these people. I love yeah. their athleticism and their focus. Hmm. And, uh, you're totally focused in CrossFit. You're, yeah. you're you're living in your own existential crunch of pain. Right. And, uh, and then you, you survive that and you come out and you feel good about it. Living and in your own existential crunch of pain. That's right. That makes flow state kind of hard to achieve. It, it does. So it's a different kind of thing. It's a di- you have to is. learn it. You have to sure. learn it. But sure. all the rest of the day 
until the next workout, I carry that workout with me. Sure. I carry the fatigue mm-hmm. with me. And I have fallen in love with that. Yeah. And I can guarantee myself that every workout. Hmm. What I have to do is sometimes I'm afraid of going into the pain. Um, I don't know how you are about that. Um, sometimes the, I'm ideas, afraid yeah. of the pain. I um, And it's not pain. It's it, yeah, Sometimes yeah. I trick myself into sure. feedback. But, right. but today I was doing my stuff and I'm... I'm 65, so theoretical heart rate max of 160, 155. Yeah. And there I am at my doing a set, and I've got my heart rate monitor. I'm at 150. I'm, I'm within a few beats of my projected maximum heart rate. Wow. And that means I'm just gassed. Yeah. Um, and I'm staying there for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. you know. And um, But I feel good. I come out of that, and I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah. You should be. I think that's that goes back to the idea we talked about stress and how I don't think you should avoid it. I, you know, you can't, everyone wants to manage stress. Stress management cannot be accomplished yeah. with stress avoidance. Yeah. We say, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, I we often have to sort of justify the good athlete project. Coach for kindness is our yeah. handle. I you love know, that phrase. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I, I really do. And, and part of the reason I'm, I'm so enamored by it is because we recognize that this is not a soft operation. Right, we want to step toward stress and get good at managing it. Yeah. Step in, step toward the yeah. fear. And you know, figure a buddy it out. mine. So you see that that picture of me rowing. Yeah, and rowing's it's rhythmic. It's all the lines. It's it's pretty. Mm-hmm. Rowing's a pretty sport. Yeah, I had a buddy who won a gold medal. Uh, I was never as good as his name was Scott Roop, and he was an artist. Hmm. And he, his art of rowers, was bodies exploding you know you're in there it's like sure. a deadlift you're sure. like that and so bodies exploding and spines coming out of the back and wow. blood and wow. and and so it was violent yeah but the row with scott was just silk yeah and uh, yeah. so it's that that contrast there is, it really it, and, and i think that duality is something that we yeah. all have Dual, it's a and duality du- it, for sure i i i've i will catch myself two weeks ago i went and competed in um a nationals for powerlifting for my age group and everything, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but I, and I wrote a, a poem on the airplane down to Oklahoma City to compete in powerlifting and then threw 500 pounds on my back or whatever and, yeah. and, and hammered through that. I say that not to pat myself on the back, but I think in recognition of where I'm at, where your friend's at, um, where you are in many ways, you, you know, we have, you don't want to be in the silo of art or in the silo of one's body or any sort of silo right. because the human experience is all of that. Right. Um, We're, we are, I think, designed to be in these all of these environments and to move through them, certainly to survive, mm-hmm. but ideally to thrive. Yep. Right. And, and that's interesting that you're still enjoying that and you're still liking that. Which part? The, uh, the, the com- competition. The right. oh, because, yeah. I, because I think that competitive powerlifting, it's hard for me to imagine that doing this. So that's a, a squat, a deadlift, and a bench. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I can't imagine a bench or certainly a squat mm-hmm. where it just, ooh, that felt good. You know what's amazing? Is it? there? It, it's there? It does. I, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> that would fit with my understanding. But, but what it also tells you is I don't know that. Sure. That's it's fair. I, I yeah. don't know that. Sure. You, but I'm going to believe you because I've done enough single golf shots or rowing boats, running, swimming, biking. Like that felt right. To, to, yeah. to, that felt right to have read a book, to have loved a woman, mm-hmm. that all of these things were a flow. 
And so there's a flow in that. You have to learn it. It's a, it's kind of a brutal flow. It's, but it's I, I would even say, would you say yeah. violent? Does violence it? I think there's, a, it, at moments is a violent flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. And, and um, the reason that I like, the reason I stay competitive in powerlifting, um, and, and listen, I stay competitive with, you know, not, I'm not know that competitive. Yeah. I'm not setting world records and things yeah. like that. And I actually say, you know, going back to the idea, does your behavior match your goal? My goal always is like, if I'm not um, two weeks of training away from competing in a 5K, you know, and not being in agony, yeah. then then my training is off. Yeah. So I want to be a power lifter, but not a, a singular, yeah, you know, yeah. not just that. But uh, what, one thing I like about it is, the feedback, oh man, this can make me sound like such a meathead. The feedback is pain. And it's when you do it right and when you do it wrong, and there's a differentiation between there. And it's this really cool, nuanced thing. There is the, the burn, the, you know, and you cannot row without knowing exactly what that feels yeah. like. That's the sport in many ways. There's an incredible burn and tax um, that you are willingly putting, you know, enforcing and your you body. And you have to learn how to like that and mm-hmm. use it. And use it, and you exactly right, and use it as feedback. I'm doing this right. It's not just you know if your knee feel is in agony, you're doing you're it wrong. wrong. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Or your hip, uh, you know, yeah. you're doing it wrong. So it is a wonderful feedback. And then, uh, then I tapered for this last meet, and and uh, and I and I hit one, and it was just it felt amazing. I actually, I mean, it's funny that you say that because I have not said a word to anyone about that idea. You know, I grinded through. Uh, my training and you know alongside my work and all that stuff and flew down and competed solo there was no one to talk to about it when I was down there but there were a couple that just felt right yeah yeah, yeah. and that's hard to come by in fact yeah. it's the the only way I know how to have that experience is to engage in it right and these mm-hmm. devices now tell me what the comparable experience is going to be in this yeah. and maybe there is something there well okay Who's the guy? What is his name? Ninja. Tell me more. Ninja is probably the world's most competitive video gamer, Hmm. League of Legends. Hmm. And it'd be interesting to talk to him on a podcast about flow in the digital universe. Wow. And how he trains for it. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you a note because I had my class study this. Yeah. In my sport management class, I'm pointing out that, hey, kids, you're all training to work in an athletic department at a college or yeah. work for the Tennessee Titans. But I'm telling you that in 20 years, inter- college sport will be League of Legends. That's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's coming. Or Fortnite and, and these other games. Now, that doesn't mean that college football is going to go away. But right. Right, most, most of the people who come to see a Middle Tennessee State University football game are not Middle Tennessee State University students. Really? They're people in the community. If we can hmm. get 1,000 kids to a game, we did pretty good. From the university? From the really? university, yeah. But we've got more than that sure. participating with their own money in a League right. of Legends tournament right now. Wow. And we're not alone. I mean, I think the single, I don't know the data, but I think the most attended college sporting event last year, it, well, maybe not a single sport, but all sports combined, wasn't traditional athletics. Wow. It was uh, video gaming. That's unbelievable. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. That is, I, I don't know whether to be alarmed or to get on board. I wonder, uh, your kids might study, your students might study mirror neurons. I wonder how... Um, I wonder how a game with other bodies would would change well, it is engagement. Social. It is yeah. social. They're in they're yeah. in a social universe with right. headsets on and stuff sure. like that, and they're and competing it's first against person. Oftentimes, isn't it? 
I'm sorry. Is it first person view? So it's as it's a, though you were moving. Yeah, it's the first person shooters, and you've got multiple screens. They've yeah. got you know a keyboard and a, a joystick. They've got a headset on, and they're. Yeah. I mean, you see these guys go. They're they're look like they're flying a fighter plane. You know. That's awful. And they're killing bad guys, and and the noise and the sounds. Oh are, sure. That's wild. Um, well, <laughs> it's, so it's the scary. Flow, I got the flow experience. You said there were two. And yeah. So the flow experience rowing. I love it. Yeah. Um, all right. This, this, and Alex will love this. He usually does this. This is what we call the lightning round. Okay. Quick hitters. You ready for this? Uh, sure. I, I, I think so. I usually ask if the, if the um, participant is sitting down. I see that you are. So. <laughs> all right. First one. What was your first job? Sam's Sandwich making uh, roast beef sandwiches, San Diego, California, on Morena Boulevard. I love that. For a buck sixty-five an hour. That's a steal. <laughs> and I got like, fired. <laughs> you, got fired? <laughs> you weren't worth a dollar sixty-five. No, an hour? I, I skipped work one time and went to a dance at the University of San Diego, and I was seen. Oh, so no. I went back next time. They gave me my final check, and that was it. My, that was my career in the meat business. <laughs> well, and here you are today as a well-respected professor, yeah, still so. selling meat, still selling <laughs> in, in, in a different sort of way, I guess. Um, one habit that you repeat daily that you think leads to your success, a habit you couldn't go without, reading. a routine, reading every day, reading every and day. And when when would you do it? I get up, brush my teeth, wash my face. My hair's short enough so I almost stick my head under the sink, make a cup of coffee, come back, and I open up this. And, you read and the first thing I'll do is I'll check my email, eliminate them, mm. make sure nothing's going on. Then I will read um, a variety of popular media, usually New York Times, Washington Post, catch up on that stuff. And then that's and then I'll try to read something um, that's just scholarly. So mm. I'll, I'll probably try to get in a couple hours of reading. Something in the field. I read. Yeah. And, and what, are you reading anything right now that does not pertain to the field? Novel or? Oh, a novel. Yeah, yeah I also read. I probably read a book a week. Um, mm. I just finished a series of science fiction. They're just trash novels went through them. I couldn't even tell you who the author was. <laughs> yeah, just enjoy Although I did, I did read a series of trashy science fiction novels that were good enough, so I looked up both the authors to see if there was an eighth story out yeah, in yeah. the series. And, um, no luck. So, but, but I read. Yeah. If there's one thing I do, I read. I, I, I would say that myself and the guy next door, mm -hmm. uh, Rudy Dunlap, nobody's reading all the stuff. That, that he and I are reading. We're yeah. all over the place. Yeah. I think you can tell I read a lot. I mean, I you can. and I were throwing names out in books, yeah. and you yeah. and I have read a lot of the same stuff. Well, yeah, and I and I will tell you, I, to anyone listening, I hope they do adopt it as a habit. I try to read every morning, too. I think the way one engages with language and idea, yeah. talk about coloring the mind. I try to color, color the mind every morning yeah. in that way. I think it's really good. Um, all right, first concert you ever went to. My cousin took me to a Dionne Warwick concert when I was in 12th grade, and that was at the Anaheim Convention Center. What is Dionne Warwick? Isn't Dionne Warwick, doesn't she tell fortunes? Do you know the way to San Jose? San Jose. That, that's she, she was, she did all of the songs that, uh, God, who's the, uh, he, he wrote the soundtrack to all those movies in the late 60s. He was great. But not Barry Manilow. It'll come to me by the end of it. But anyway, uh, she, she, he, uh, she had a guy writing for her, and she did a bunch of stuff. And my cousin loved Dionne Warwick. There you go. Dionne Warwick. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so there might be some overlap in these next two, but answer them however you want. One thing that I've become increasingly interested in, um, actually alongside Professor Cutton, who I met at um, the NACI yeah. conference, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, self-talk. So, and Brian Culp, I think, was talking a little bit about yeah. that as well. Um, what sort of self-talk do you use when you feel like you're performing well? Oh, that's a hard one. I don't think I... I probably do use self-talk, but I don't think I'm aware of I'm using self-talk. I have a... Maybe this is the answer. I have basically a movie in my head going on all the time and I'm a star in the movie and so what how is the movie how is the narrative unfolding and can I adjust the script hmm. to change the theme I and so uh, and it ends up with music you know in 84 I was I, I didn't know it but my I was never going to make another national the last team I made was 82 right so um, there's a movie out called Chariots of Fire, mm -hmm. and the theme song was by Van Gelic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I said his name right. Um, but it goes, dun, 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 dun. And so yeah, I can hear absolutely. the theme. And so there's usually a song with the theme, and I'm in the movie, and something's going on, and I'm trying to be a hero so everybody likes me. Yeah, <laughs> that definitely counts. That's incredible. That is... Um, I feel like you're my psychotherapist. No, I, for sure, I, I think what a wonderful version of self-talk. Seriously, I think that's, I think, because um, maybe it's not a word. You know, some people have like sort of mantras and phrases and some yeah. people, uh, I've heard people have to, you know, to say growth mindset sometimes is the cue. They'll have to be like, no, I want growth mindset. And then they'll start to use language intentionally beyond that. Some people you should see in the powerlifting world. There's some pretty intense self-talk Have you noticed how you know, people get some headsets on mm -hmm. and they'll get jacked? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, and now, I was doing that. I would run. I would lift weights. But I have found that I can't have music on because then right. I can't be focused in it. If I'm just doing something, just reps, I, sure. music starts to work. But if I'm actually rowing my boat, mm. you know, I'm in the water. No, nothing. You it's, right. it's me. I'm there. It's uh, right. got to be 100%. That's, uh, before we go on to this last one, I guess... Um, there is a really cool video out there of uh, people don't recognize this. This is one of those wa attention and w water metaphor things. You don't think you're pouring too much into the listening bin, but you certainly are. Yeah. Meaning, like especially if a if it's a new song that's engaging that has lyrics, and you're actually trying to try not only the melody but the lyrics too, and try to interpret that. Uh, that's a lot of neural activity. Oh yeah. And there's this really cool video of someone listening to classical music, just classical music, no words. And the way that light dances across this oh, imaging yeah. of the brain, it's, it's amazing. So, uh, you know, when you came in, I, you probably couldn't hear it, but I put on... I did, know, yeah. You had some yeah. classical music on. Yeah, I just put on really low, mm -hmm. and it just... That's good. I love that. Yeah. Well, and, and then maybe in, in certain cases, um, some people like classical music low to read. Some people um, find it distracting. Everyone who has lyrics in the music that they're listening to while reading is experiencing some low level of multitasking. Yes. Yeah. So, um, anyway, finally, advice from a leader. You are clearly a leader in your field. Advice to a future leader hoping to accomplish uh, a similar career. You're doing something that I really like. You are carving your own path. Have faith. That's really good advice. Um, 
I can't tell you how many people told me I would not be successful. And I live with my father, and I love my father. He's 89, and he's, he's doing great. He's gotten frail, but intellectually, he's still there. In 1976, the first time I tried out for the U.S. team, I'm wandering around the house. I'm throwing stuff in there. I'm about to drive my little beat-to-shit Toyota Corolla from Los Angeles to Princeton, New Jersey. Hmm. And I'm walking around, and my dad's following me. My buddy's waiting in the car by this time. And I finally stop on the doorstep. It was like a movie. I said, Dad, what's up? And he says, you should get a job. And I said, you could wish me fucking luck. And I didn't talk to him until 78 or 79 after that. Really? Yeah. But I didn't make it. I had no idea how bad. I I didn't. I wasn't bad. I didn't know how good I needed to be to race on the U.S. team. Yeah. But I got back there, and the only way to learn how to be that good is to try to be on the U.S. team. Mm -hmm. And so I went and did it. My dad and I have since reconciled. We've told each other that story, our versions of it. It's pretty funny, and it's it's pretty good. But you're you're further along than I was in '76. But what we have in common is I had to have faith, maybe some ignorance. I had to have enough skill. I had to have enough things to go there, buddy. Of all things, you gotta you gotta say, okay, I'm gonna try this. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, that's one time uh, my my doctoral advisor told me I'd never get a job when mm-hmm. I finish up my doctorate because I wasn't a good enough scholar. And I got the only two that were out there in 1989. Wow. I only took one of them. Sure. But I mean, and it just you, you just gotta you gotta go for it. Mm-hmm. And then. You're going to get the shit kicked out of you at some point, and and I recommend that you read a poem. It's uh, "If" by Rudyard Kipling. I know it well, yeah. And if you can, you know, build your world up around you after everything's fallen apart with broken out and worn out tools, and uh, and those so to to have faith again, and that yeah. seems to I don't know. It's good advice. I think so too. You know, but if we so many people go through the world afraid. Mm-hmm. God, I, I hated I hated seeing that in my children's eyes when I saw that they were afraid of the world. Somebody had knocked them down, yeah. especially my youngest daughter. I knew her expressions better. And I remember when a second grade teacher made it her mission to get my youngest daughter to conform. That mm-hmm. was the mission in that classroom. Yeah. And uh, God broke my heart. And, it, and I'll never forgive myself for not handling it better. I think I should have done something she's doing great yeah there's not a damaged child you know and no 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 no. and then you know if you don't get some trauma in your life how do you grow that's right you said you're right inviting trauma but is is different than than recognizing i'll use the word stress again but you got to go through stuff we say it in in you know at the first day of football practice we say it all the time and i and i'm lucky to say it through like we mentioned a couple times through a slightly different filter and that is look here the, here's the theory and the research behind what I think we're about to engage in. Yeah. But let me tell you a truth that I recognize, and that is the only way to get tough is to go through tough things. So you, you've got to embrace this. That's right. You have to. Yeah. Embrace the suck. Yeah. Embrace the suck. <laughs> and that can be the title of the podcast. Embrace, embrace the, the suck. suck. <laughs> That's right. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. I Truly. didn't know I was going to have so much fun. 
This week's episode is brought to you by Remind Recover. Remind Recover is a supplement that helps athletes support brain health. Similar to how you drink a protein shake to help your muscles recover after a workout, Remind Recover has been scientifically formulated to give you the nutritional building blocks to help support healthy brain function. I am a huge fan of Remind Recover. It is as close to the science as any supplement I've seen, and feel free to check out their website for more. It's remindrecover.com. And when you go there, if you want to place an order, and I recommend it, use the code GOODATHLETE for a discount on checkout. 